Thank you so much for coming back today. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be continuing this morning on our series through uh, the book of Galatians. And I'm gonna, I'd like to pray for us one more time as we get ready to worship through the hearing of God's word. We do rejoice, Lord, that we are called your people, people of the risen King. And we believe, Lord Jesus, that because you live, we also will live. The trump will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised. We will meet you in the air. And so we will forever be with the Lord. I pray now, Father, that you would minister to our hearts through your word, that you would speak, Lord, in the precise places where we need to hear, that you would give us hearts to hear, believe, and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. So, um, let me try to summarize for us so we can keep track of what we're doing. Uh, Paul has made... A long, detailed argument to the churches in Galatia concerning how our right standing before God comes through faith in Christ and not through keeping the law. Because the Judaizers had come, false teachers had come to these churches saying that to be a real Christian, a true Christian, you must not just believe in Christ, but also become a Jew. Keep the Old Testament Jewish law. And part of the thing, part of one of the things that Paul argues is that the law cannot save because all the law really did was enslave us. It enslaved us. It condemned us because of our sin, which we all sin. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. But it gave us no power to obey. It gave us no strength to obey. It gave us no hope. But through faith in Christ, we died to the law. Christ kept the law for us with his perfect life. He paid the penalty for the law that we should have paid through his death on the cross And through his resurrection from the dead, by faith in him, we now have new life in Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit so that we are changed from the inside out and are no longer bound by the law and its demands. So through Christ, we are children of God and God is our Father. And so, Paul, after arguing this, however, Paul wants to make clear That just because we are children in Christ, just because the law is not binding us anymore, that doesn't mean you can live however you want. Because we have the spirit of Jesus Christ, our thoughts change, our attitudes change, our way of looking at the world changes, so that we obey the law, we do keep the law in the sense that we keep the essence of the law. That is, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. And that, of course, does mean that we embrace certain activities, and it also means that we reject other types of behaviors and desires. Because freedom in Christ is not freedom to live however you want. It's freedom from sin, which is freedom from living for yourself. It's freedom from yourself, freedom to do what you couldn't do before. That is live for God and love other people. And so Paul says here, he explains what this may look like in practice. 
And he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Those are two different things. Works of the flesh is what happens when you live however you want. The fruit of the Spirit is what happens when you live by the Spirit. Last week, we talked about the first part of the works of the flesh, and that was sexual morality. We're going to look at the rest of the works of the flesh today. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Just like last week, I'm going to start in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and read through verse 24, so that we'll have some context. Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The Word of God. You may be seated. So, I'm going to be talking about the remainder this morning of the works of the flesh from Galatians 5 verse 19 through verse 21. And I'm going to summarize the remainder of these works of the flesh under this category of relational sin. Relational sin. In fact, we're going to see three things, three ways that I've decided to categorize these uh, different works of the flesh that Paul outlines here. Uh, Three types of relational sin. Spurning God, spurning others, and spurning ourselves. Number one, spurning God. Number two, spurning others. And number three, spurning ourselves. First, spurning God. Look back in verse 19. I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll start at verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. And then look at these first two. Idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry and sorcery. What is the first of these is idolatry. Now, idolatry is a pretty familiar term for most of us if we if we grew up in church. Now, idolatry in Paul's context, and actually in many places today in other parts of the world, Paul's Paul's forbidding of idolatry has immediate um, and uh, very practical application. That is, in Paul's day, it was quite clear that when he forbid idolatry, he obviously meant refusing to worship, venerate, or offer sacrifices to gods or idols. So, of course, in Paul's day, there were idols. Uh, There were the Roman gods that you learned about in school, Zeus and Athena and and, uh, all these different kinds of gods. And they had... Artemis and others, and they had temples, and people would actually go to these temples, they would bow down to these statues, and they would offer sacrifices. So when Paul is saying, uh, 
is condemning idolatry, he clearly has that in view. You should not go and worship false gods, things that are not God. You should not go to their temple and offer sacrifices to them. In the Bible, idolatry is presented as the fundamental sin. In fact, one way, there's several ways to do so, but one way to think about all sin is to think about it in terms of idolatry. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, what did the devil say to them? You will be like God if you eat this fruit. In other words, the first sin was idolatry of self. I want to be God. And in fact, that's what all sin is. It is an attempt to say, I want to be in the place of God so that I make the rules for my life and not him. That's what all sin is. And that's the root and essence of idolatry. But it's clear that the Bible sees that idolatry is much deeper than just bowing down to statues. We in the West, in America, Western Europe, etc., if you go to India and you see someone today go to one of their many temples and, and, and lay food at, at the base of the statues and pray and offer up incense to God, you would, you would think that's so strange, almost laughable. Why would they do that? Why would they offer this stuff? Why would they offer these things to statues? But let me tell you something. We got plenty of idols here. We have plenty of things that we worship, and we are as idolatrous as any and every other culture that has ever lived. Paul gets down to the heart of idolatry in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Well, what is covetousness? It's wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Paul says covetousness is idolatry. What, how, how, were, how were Adam and Eve covetous in the garden? They wanted the right to decide right and wrong for themselves. And it's idolatry. That right belongs only to God. Idolatry, then, is wanting anything that does not belong to you. It is looking at something and saying that I must have that to be happy. It is looking at something and saying, if I don't have that, I cannot be truly me, truly free, truly happy. It is looking at something created and said, I must have that to the, to the neglect and, and, uh, and disdain of the creator. It is looking at something other than God to make you truly happy. It is having your affections of your heart for something created eclipse your affection for its creator. What you love the most is your God. The thing that you can't live without is your God. The thing that if you lost it, you would be so utterly devastated that you could not go on is your God. 
And this is a problem because the, the very first of the Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus stated it positively rather than negatively. Jesus said it this way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is what? The first and great commandment. Do you realize that when you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you are breaking what Jesus calls the first and greatest commandment? The most important one. And you're breaking it. Well, think about what this means. Why would God's very first commandment The most important one, clearly the most important one in all the Bible, is you shall have no other gods before me. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus say that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why, of all the commands, why would that be the most important? Well, think about it. Remember, Christianity is not just a bunch of beliefs thrown together. It's a a whole worldview. Who is God? He is the creator, author, and sustainer of everything. When God gives people commands, people say, well, I don't understand that. You know, what's the big deal? What do you mean, what's the big deal? God made you. You think it's not a big deal because God seems distant to you, but you're not distant to God. When you were in your mother's womb, he was knitting you together. That's why God cares what you do with your life. You might not feel he's there. You might not believe he's there, but he knows you're there. And he cares about every detail of your life, and he made you for him. A hammer is made to nail nails. You ever tried to unscrew a screw with a hammer? (laughs) What do you think is going to happen to you if you use your life for something other than it was made for? God made us, therefore he knows. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What's everybody in the world doing? They're pursuing other things, thinking that other things beside God can make them happy. And God says, look to me. You want want unbelievable and eternal pleasure and happiness? Come to my presence. Stand before your maker. I'll show you what you were made for. We were made to know God, to love him, to serve him. The essence of Christianity, this is the essence of Christianity. That only God can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man found in a field and hid. And in his joy, in his joy, he sold all that he had to buy that field. What does that mean? It means God is a treasure. And when you, and what is conversion? When, when does a person become a Christian? A person becomes a Christian when for the first time in their life they see how valuable God is 
That they are willing to say, I don't care what it costs me, I want God. That person has been converted. That person has finally seen God for who he is. Because they finally, for the first time in their life, see the all-glorious, all-satisfying nature of God. Such that, I don't care what else it costs me, I'll give up everything just to have him. The danger, and here's the real danger of idolatry. The danger of idolatry is that anything can become an idol. Anything, literally anything, can become an idol. And the danger for many people who have grown up in church for a long time is that we have have respectable idols, That is that there are things that we put before God, but they're otherwise they're good things, and so we don't think about it. Your children can be your idol. You should love your children, but you should not worship your children. And I think some some of the problems that we have in this world is some people worship their children. When your children are your God, they call the shots. When God is your God, God calls the shots. And that will change the way you parent your children. Tell me now, parents, grandparents. Let's say your, your son or daughter, you have, they, I don't know, I'm just making it up. You have a bunch of grandkids. Your son or daughter has four children. Just making it up. They come to you and say, your, your, your son comes up to you and says, or daughter says, we feel called to the mission field. I'm taking myself, your daughter-in-law, and your four grandchildren to the Middle East, and we're not coming back for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you tell them? Do you tell them, are oh, you crazy? What are you doing? Or do you say, go, my son, in the power of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll see you on the other side. We believe in eternity, we believe in heaven. We believe in a world that is worth giving up everything to have Christ. What's your idol? What must you have besides God? Idols can be anything. But only God is big enough. He's, He's the only one who has enough gravity to place in the center of our life to hold everything else in orbit. If you try to take something smaller than him and put him at the center of your life, everything will fly out of control. It's too small too little. Anything. Children, money, sexuality, anything you can think of, power, respect, anything that you can think of, race, ethnicity, culture, anything that we put first in our lives is too small besides God. So how do you know what's an idol? What do you love the most? What do you serve? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You either serve God or money. How do you serve money? You serve, money, you serve money so that you can get its benefits for you. So that you, can, you serve money so that you can get its power to work on your behalf. Did you know that's really how we serve God? We are weak and we are helpless and we need God to work for us or we're helpless. But you can only serve one thing that way. If you serve God, if you serve money such that you think if you have more money it'll save you, you're lost. But if you serve God knowing that if you serve him that he will save you, you're saved. You, would, you could think of another way to think of idolatry is what you serve. 
You, if you think your, if you think your, if you think your children just turn out all right, you'll be really happy in life. You're serving your children to save yourself. Only God can save you. What do you think about the most? What do you fear to lose the most? You know, one of the strongest images that God uses over and over in the Bible when it comes to idolatry and his people, we read the Old Testament, is he refers to Israel when they commit idolatry, he calls them an adulteress. That's what he says. What is idolatry? It is spiritual adultery. God calls his people his bride. And what happens when you have a spouse and then you go give your heart to something else, someone else? What are you doing? It's cosmic betrayal. Cosmic infidelity. Cosmic adultery. And that's what idolatry is. And so, this is a call for me and for everybody in your heart to examine your life and say, Is there anything in my life before God? Is there anything in my life in there that is functionally, you may not say it, we would never say it, but functionally, the way you live your life, the way you think your thoughts, the way you spend your time, your energy, your money, that that you are devoting in your heart and your mind, you're, you're treating that thing as your God. I urge you, I plead you, turn to God, give it up. It can't save you. Only God can save. Idolatry. And number two, and under the spurning God title is this, it's sorcery. He says, idolatry, sorcery. Now, besides Harry Potter, I doubt there's many sorcerers in here. But the word actually derives, it's, it, the, the word is pharmacos, where we derive our word pharm, uh, pharmacology, pharmaceuticals, pharmacy. It refers to one commentator says it refers to drugs used in the practice of magic, of the occult, and, and pagan worship and things like that. So what then does Paul mean when he says sorcery? Well, I think, it, I think what it means is that sorcery, what Paul is saying, is an attempt to manipulate reality without God. It's an attempt to use other things besides the proper channel that is appealing to God... And keeping his commands is an attempt to use another way, another means of getting what you want. So if someone was mad at somebody, and rather than obeying God and uh, trusting God's vengeance that he will deal with it and forgiving like God says to, you go to some magician or sorcerer and have them try to curse this person for you. It's an, it's, it's an attempt to manipulate reality to pursue your ends for yourself apart from God. One commentator said that these drugs were sometimes used to induce abortions. Well, think about abortion in, in, in some cases today. Not every case, but some cases today. Why, does, why would someone might get an abortion? Well, maybe this, this, these two people wanted to have their time of pleasure apart from God's will, apart from God's command, unbelief. They're not trusting in God that his way is best. And so they... They, 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 have, they pursue self and pleasure at this time, and they get pregnant. 
And in that moment, for them, for them in that moment, that child, that baby in the womb, all it represents to them is their life ruined. Because to them it means my plans for my life are gone, my, my, the, the purposes that I had for myself are gone because now I have. And so what do they, what, what, what do, they do? What sometimes happens? They go to abortion clinic and they get an abortion. Well, what is that? That is the heart and the essence, I think, of what Paul means by sorcery. It is wanting your ends for it is wanting your ends for your life totally apart from God. So you're going to use God forbidden means so that what you want so that to achieve your ends for yourself. So it's a lot more than than saying some kind of chant or making some kind of potions in your backyard. It is a heart that says, I'm going to do things my way, apart from God's will, apart from God's way, so that I can have achieved my ends in this world. And so what are idolatry and sorcery together? They are spurning God. They're spurning God. They're, they're looking at other things as if they're more satisfying than the Creator. They're pursuing your ends for yourself as if God doesn't exist. Or at least He matters much less than everything else. This is the most important thing, and we must get this right. Relational sin, the root of our relational brokenness, is first the fact that our relationship with God is broken. And that's why Jesus Christ has come. Because we spurn God, because we all have and do, Jesus Christ has come to bear the penalty for our rebellion so that we can come back to God. So first, spurning God. Number two, spurning others. Spurning others. Look back at this list in verse 20. He lists a long list here. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But, but, but look at those middle ones. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These are, if you think about it, these are relation, horizontal. Spurning God is our vertical relationship. Spurning others is, our, is horizontal relationships, horizontal brokenness. That's what this group of words focus on. The first word is enmity, which means it's personal antagonism towards others. It's the heart root of viewing people as your enemy. This has, ne- I don't, this has never been more true today than today. In our increasingly polarized world, and on both sides of the line, both sides of the aisle, you've, someone may differ with you on certain politically or something else, and if, if in your heart you are viewing that person as your in the enemy, then you are engaging in enmity. Is the, is the condition of your heart of viewing someone as your enemy? The Bible, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit will stop us from looking at people that way. Hear me now. We will not fundamentally view people. You can, let me give you a novel idea. You can disagree with people and not hate them. That just, that may shock some people, but it's true. Just because you disagree with someone doesn't mean that you hold personal animosity toward them. God hates God hates our sin. But Jesus Christ showed once and for all that God's not our enemy unless we don't repent. <laughs> then he will be. 
But God is for us. And we can be for other people whom we disagree with. The next word is strife. Strife, of course, is just very closely related to enmity. That's a hard word to say. Enmity. enmity. Strife is the contention that enmity produces. It's the palpable sense of antagonism. So enmity is is your heart posture... And strife is what that heart heart posture creates between you and somebody else. It's that sense, that feeling of antagonism toward one another. Paul says that the Holy Spirit of God takes this out of our lives and our relationships because we treat and think about other people differently. Next is jealousy. Paul says jealousy in this sense is probably not envy, which, which comes later in the list. But jealousy translates a word that oftentimes is used to refer to jealousy or, or zealous or zealousness for oneself. And, and oftentimes it's used in a positive sense of being zealous for God. We should be zealous for God. We should be jealous for God's glory in the world. And this is opposed to being zealous for yourself. In your life, you can either pursue your ends and your glory and be zealous that other people respect. You know how you, you, you can tell someone is zealous for themselves? How they respond when they're disrespected. How do you respond when you feel disrespected? You get mad about it? You get angry about it? Whose glory are you living for? Yours? Or God's? We're not supposed to be zealous for ourselves. Who are you? Who am I? I'm nobody. I don't care if you, it doesn't matter if you think little about me. You, I, I'll tell you more. You can think even less if you want to. It doesn't matter what you think about me, but I do care what you think about Jesus Christ. And I'm going to try to live my life in a way that you think as much as him as possible. Who are you jealous for? Closely related to that, the next word is fits of anger. If, if you understand jealousy in that sense, then it's the next logical thing. Because if you're jealous for yourself, then you're going to be someone who's characterized by fits of anger. Can't control your temper. People with short fuses. People who fly off the handle. If you have the Spirit of God in you, we should not act like that. Because if you act like that, what does it show? That you care too much about yourself. That you take yourself so seriously that you can't bear the thought of someone disrespecting you. God gets us over ourselves. God gets us over ourselves so that we can love people. I'm not, say, we're not, I'm not saying we strive for a bad reputation. The Bible says the opposite. But the thing is, is, look, if you get offended at every person who criticizes you or disrespects you in some way, you're going to be constantly mad. You know how many people disrespect God every day? You know what God does? He sends rains on their field. He wakes them up in the morning. People who wake up every day and give no thought to God and consciously live in disobedience to God, God wakes them up in the morning. God puts food on their table. Next is rivalries. Um, It's an interesting translation. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe your translation says something different. The word means selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. 
And it, again, it refers to those who love attention, love praise, love to be in positions of respect and power, and who will wheel and deal at the cost of others to get these things. It's someone who, who, who that, you know, they want to be first. They want, they want, they want to have, uh, they want their way to be done. They want to get in the positions of power. They want to, they want to, they want to climb the corporate ladder. It doesn't matter who they have to step on. Let me tell you something. You could be president of the United States. God doesn't care. Not if you don't have integrity. Character. Selfish ambition. Next, dissensions. Dissensions focus on the fragmentations that occur in communities or fellowships. And, and closely related to it is the next one, divisions. This word could be translated sect or, or, or faction. Um, it, it refers to a party spirit that sets up one group in the fellowship as opposed to another. We know all about this today in the, our identity politics. You just slap a label on someone and then you don't have to listen to anything they say. God calls us to better than that. He calls us to, to think critically even when others aren't. He calls us to have integrity even when others aren't. Just because someone else on your perceived other side may do something, may lack integrity, that doesn't mean you have to. They, who can, if they win in the cultural or political war, it doesn't matter because they still have to answer to God and so do you. So you better not make a mistake here. We serve a higher standard, a higher king. So we can't just, so just because we may see perceived um, uh, injustices and, or cheating or whatever you want to call it on the other side, it doesn't matter. Because we obey God. And the last one Paul says here is envy. Envy describes, is, is, is that desire when you see something that someone else wants and you want it. And you can't have it. Why did they get that? Why did that happen to them? I deserve that. It's that you see someone else, something good happens to them. You don't rejoice. You say, should have been me. Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let me tell you something. If God wanted you to have it, he'd give it to you. When, when Jesus, at, before he ascended into heaven, he was walking with Peter, and John was following close behind. And Jesus told Peter, when you're old, people are going to pick you up, carry you where you don't want to go. He's going to be crucified. John was walking behind him. Peter said, what about this guy? Jesus said, what's it matter to you if he should remain till I come? What's it? I'll do with John what I want to do with John. You follow me. You follow me. You follow Jesus. You let him deal with it. 
what he dishes out, what he gives to other people. You follow me. All of these, Paul says, all of these, Paul says, um, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, robberies, dis, uh, dissension, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. All of these, Paul says, are the works of the flesh, and he contrasts them with the fruit of the Spirit. With the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. In other words, the Spirit fundamentally changes your life. You're either led by the flesh or you're led by the Spirit. It's not going to be both. And these are the works of the Spirit. Now think about, think about even how I've categorized these things in terms of relational sin. What does this mean? It means I think that one of the key evidences of the power of the Spirit of God at work in His people is unity. That is, a sure sign of sin in the camp is division. Because what? Think about it. Unity is supernatural. That is, I'm telling you, it's so important. Read your New Testament carefully. Jesus said, the way that they'll know you is by your love for one another. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would all be one so that the world may know that, that you sent me. In other words... The unity of the church is what's going to proclaim to the world that Jesus is God. That's how important unity is. And, when, and so when divisions and strife is, in the, is manifested in the church, it shows that sin is at work. It's, anybody can find a reason to be mad at somebody else. Anybody can do that. It's literally the easiest thing in the world. But to love people who disagree with you and are different than you, that is supernatural. It's supernatural. It's worked by the Holy Spirit of God. And the testimony of the church is supposed to be that Christ is so supreme that he's able to hold together people so different, but yet they're so united in their identity in Christ that it tells the world that Jesus is somebody special. Only the Spirit of God can do this. Only the Spirit of God can help you get over yourself enough to love other people and serve others and love God. It is the unity of the church that is the hallmark of our otherworldly allegiance. Um, How can we maintain such unity? I'm skipping skipping down to, to Luke 18. How can we maintain such unity? Forgiveness is key. I'm going to read some long passages to you, but I want you to think about this. How do we maintain unity in the church? We must learn to forgive. That's the only way. Why? Because we're sinners in the midst living with other sinners. That means that I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. How in the world can we love one another? We have to learn to forgive. In Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted it. The, 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 so how do we forgive? The first thing is this. We have to be more concerned about our own sin than other people's sin. Luke 18, verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The sin God tells you to care the most about is your own. If you focus on other people's sin, you're going to get real mad real fast. But let me tell you something. When you get get and stand before the great white throne of judgment, God's not going to tell you to account for every other else's sin. He's going to hold up a mirror and say, tell me about yours. So you better start worrying about your own more than you worry about others. Next, how do we forgive? We must trust in God's justice, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the reasons that we don't forgive others is we feel like if we forgive them, they're going to get away with it. Isn't that true? If you don't hold it against them, who's going to? If you don't make them pay for it, who's going to? God. God will punish every sin way better than you could. He's going to reward every act of righteousness. Let me tell you something. He sees other people's hearts way better than you do. If you entrust it to God, guess what? You can get over it. No one's going to get away with anything. You can move on. You can move on with your life. You can trust God and love people. It's interesting that God's wrath actually fuels forgiveness, and it does. Because God's going to deal with it, you don't have to. Because God's going to take care of it, you can let it go. All these things are relational, and I'm going to move on to the last point here. Spurning ourselves. The last one is spurning ourselves. At the end of, at the beginning of verse 21, these last two works of the flesh, he says, are drunkenness and orgies. What, what these simply refer to is a giving of oneself to partying, drugs, general reckless lifestyle in pursuit of pleasure or fun. That's what these words mean. It's very common today and everywhere. What is this? It's living this way. Basically, it's just it's a rejection of God's purpose for your life. It's a rejection of responsibility. It's a rejection of taking seriously the rights and privileges of being made in the image of God and living life just uh, flippantly like it doesn't matter. But your life does matter. And it does matter what decisions you make. And there are consequences for living this way. Think about the story of the prodigal son. You remember, he went and he went and he left his father to live this kind of lifestyle. And where did it leave him? In the pigsty. Literally the worst place if you're a Jew that you could think of. Left him in a pigsty. 
But what's the glory of it? The glory of it is what? You can come to your senses, run back to your father, and God's right there looking for you. Waiting for you to come back. And he'll throw a ring on your finger and a robe around your body. And say, my son was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 5. At one time, you were darkness. We all were. We were all darkness. We're all living in darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. Notice the difference here. Paul is not concerned about everybody here. He's concerned about Christians. This is important because some Christians get so bit out of shape that a lost world acts like they're lost. If they don't have the Spirit of God, they can't live like a Christian. So stop getting mad at them about it. But if you call yourself a Christian, Paul says you were in darkness, but now you're a child of the light. Don't go back to the dark. Don't live in the dark. How can you name the name of Christ and there be no change in you? That's the worst. That's the worst. Peter in in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your proof. Listen, 2,000 years ago the Apostle Paul said the end of all things at hand. What does that mean? It means it's really close. It means we've been living in the end times for the last 2,000 years. And Jesus said, you won't know. You won't know. You're going to be at work. You're going to be in bed. You're going to be in your garden. You're going to be playing in the yard with your kids. And the sky is going to split open. And Jesus Christ is going to come. And then it will be too late. But if he's your king, it'll be like homecoming. You'll be ready. It's just coming home. Spurning God, spurning others, spurning ourselves. Don't you see? God came to deliver you from your relational sin. He came to reunite you to himself, to reunite you to other people, to reunite you with yourself. To be who you were made to be. To give you joy incomprehensible in himself. And that's what we were made for. If not, Paul says, if we we reject this life, Paul says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we have hope in Christ. Looking to him in faith as our father. Knowing that in him we will be saved. And so I extend an invitation in here this morning. You can come to Jesus Christ today. You can. And you can come to know the joy 